And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first episode of Culture Calculus. I am Wazney Lambray, aka Big Waz, joined by my wonderful, amazingly talented, and beautiful co-host, Kafitha Davidson. Oh, stop it, Waz. <laughs> Ever the charmer. I'm so excited about our first episode, and the first one is a doozy. First up, of course, we have Adam McKay of The Big Short fame. Of course, Anchorman. Of course, you guys are all watching Succession. Of course, you guys have seen Vice. Right now, he put out a documentary podcast called Death at the Wing. It's about basketball, politics, and the socioeconomic situation of 1980s America. It's incredible. He's got a series coming out with HBO about the Showtime Lakers. He got very into it about that. It was just a dope conversation. And then, of course, Kavitha, we have another special treat for everybody listening to the show for the first time. You talked to Jesus and Mero of Vice and Showtime fame. Just a couple of Bronx kids, New York City kids, just, you know, trying to make it happen. A couple of kids from New York. And, you know, as a kid from New York myself, it was a really thrilling conversation to have. This is an interview that I'm so excited to air. I interviewed them more than a year ago, pre-pandemic. It was before everything shut down. So I'm glad that we could bring you at least part of that interview, because obviously a lot of this, the stuff that we talked about has since changed. But yeah, I'm excited for people to hear that. And I want people to know what to expect from this podcast. Obviously, we're going to get into sports, but what we aim to do here, Kavitha, is sort of, you know, shade into those gray areas that aren't just how many assists did Chris Paul have last night, right? We want to get into just the grays, the stuff that doesn't get the full attention that it can get on other platforms, because I think at The Athletic, every single sport that we cover, we cover it thoroughly. I'm talking about from the transactions, from the analytical perspective from the X's and O's perspective. We are as thorough as it gets in our coverage of that angle of the game. And what we aim to do on this show, Kavitha, is be just as thorough about Ron Burgundy's mustache. Well, absolutely. And, you know, Ron Burgundy's mustache does need some dissecting for sure. But both you and I, Waz, we've always kind of approached sports, whether it's in our personal lives or in our professional lives, as a reflection of us and a reflection of our culture and who we are. And that we can talk about sports in the framing of some really serious stuff that's going on. We can talk about race and politics. But we can also talk about Ron Burgundy's mustache because that, again, needs to be dissected. So I'm excited to see how wide ranging and hopefully not completely random all the things that we end up talking about on this show are. Of course, we got to tackle serious subject matter, Kavitha, but we want to have fun too. We want to laugh. We want to be entertained. And, you know, we just want to make people think. And I think you guys are going to very much enjoy the direction we take this thing in. And our first guest on our first inaugural episode is Adam McKay. 
longtime screenwriter, director, producer. You know him from Anchorman, Talladega Nights, The Big Short, and Succession. Well, listen, we're so thrilled to talk to you. You've got a couple of really important and really cool sports projects in the works and, and one that's out right now. But first, I guess, you know, tell us about your own sports fandom. I know you're a boy from Philly, right? I am. I, I lived in Worcester, Massachusetts up until around fourth grade, third grade. Then I moved to Philly. So I had this weird kind of blend where I was like a Celtics fan for a while, but then started realizing the Sixers were cooler <laughs> and started slowly to become a Sixers fan. And then at some point, all fandom just blew up and shattered. And I just became a straight up NBA fan, basketball fan. I'll watch high school basketball, college, a pro, but mostly high school and pro are my two favorites. Okay. And uh, then I moved to Chicago and started going to public league games there. So my fandom is all over the place. But Andrew Tony was the first real guy who I was like, oh, yeah. I'm down with the Boston Strangler. He's he was mm-hmm. one of my favorites. Well, I've never met you, Adam, obviously, but from my internet research, you're a six foot five person. I'm assuming you hooped back in the days or probably still do. I do. I still I still hoop actively. My basketball career is not too distinguished. I rode the bench <laughs> in high school. You know, I'm a pickup ball player. I always joke that like I had about nine months where I had a respectable game. I had about nine months where I was in shape and I had a nice looking jump shot. I could always dribble pretty well. And about nine, 10 months. And then I got into college and I started going to parties and I put on weight and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I don't care. I don't let that deter me. My C minus basketball game. I still love every bit of it. And, uh, I play two, three times a week, and I'm just a fan. Just for the love of the game. Purely for the love of the game. If you if you watched me play, you would realize how much I have to love the game <laughs> playing the poor level of basketball that I play. Now, if you had to compare your game to a famous basketball player, who would that be? Oh, that's the best question to get asked for because for one second, I get to elevate myself. You know, I was always... <laughs> More of a ball handler, shooter, passer, even though I'm 6'5". So I was the guy getting yelled at by the coach, like, why aren't you going into the post? Why do you like to shoot from, you know, back then it was like 19 feet. So I would say taller guy shooting, passing. In my most delusional moments, it was probably more like, oh my God, do you remember a guy by the name of John L. Williams? Sure. Yeah. At LSU, used to play on the Wizards. I, I, I would say him because... He actually had like a pot belly, uh, yet could handle the rock, had a smooth game. And in my delusional mind, I wanted to be John L. Williams. That was like my dream player. Nice. I think he was on that old, he was on like the Bullets before they were the Wizards. I, ca- right? I called them the Wizards. They I, were, mean, I mean, fair. Yeah. By the way, that's how much better America was back then in some ways that we didn't have to worry about using the word bullet because it had like <laughs> dark connotations to it. It was just like the Bullets. They're fast. Of course. <laughs> right. And at a certain point, they're like, this name is not so cool. But Adam, I do want to ask you about the podcast because- the name is a very striking one. Um, it feels provocative when you read it. Death at the Wing. How did you find yourself at the center of this project and wanting to put it together? Because I feel like in your more recent work, you are sort of tying in all of these socioeconomic, political subject matter into your entertainment. How did you get to Death at the Wing? Yeah, so it was an idea, like like I said, been a, a hoop head for a long time. And I've always just 
wondered because you hear people talk about the death of Len Bias, and you'll see a documentary on that. Then there's a documentary about Drowsen Petrovic. Then there's a documentary about Reggie Lewis. And there's all these guys, their stories have been told. You know, a couple of them have fallen through the cracks, like Ricky Barry, you don't hear as much about. There's a few other players we talk about that aren't as publicized. But I've never heard anyone talk about the idea of why did all these guys die in the same 10-year stretch? You know, why did that happen? So I was thinking about writing it as like an article, like eight years ago, and I was just busy. And then podcasting hit. And it was like, oh, this is the perfect way to do this. This just this question I've had forever, which is why did you see this? And now you don't see it anymore. There's not like these rash of deaths around any sport, really. You know, you'll see the NFL stuff with the concussion, the CTE, but otherwise I've just never seen this before. So it started as an open question and it just came from like my love of hoops. And then I'm, you know, I'm interested in the changes that have happened in America in the last 40 years with the Reagan revolution. That's always been a subject that's fascinating to me. And as we dug into it, we realized that there wasn't really one smoking gun. There wasn't one who done it to this, but that there was harmony between these players and their tragic stories and the change that happened in America. And once again, God bless podcast, because, you know, it was the perfect outlet for this. And we got Jody Avergan, who's an incredible producer and put this great team together. And it's just been a, a really interesting, sometimes heartbreaking experience telling these stories. Yeah. How important was it? Because the first, you know, the beginning of this pod is really about laying out the landscape of American politics, the landscape of American society, what's happening with both Reaganism and the crack epidemic and the war on drugs, and also the state of the very nascent NBA. How important and how did you put together the framing of all of those things coming together in that decade? Obviously, the first episode is the trickiest. And it's also the one I tell my NBA fan friends. I'm like, that's the one where you may know a lot of the stuff. Like if you know about the NBA, you know about the ABA and the merger and the emergence of the wing and how the game changed. So, you know, that's kind of the setting the table episode. And it was definitely the hardest one because it's the one where you've got to tell these three parallel stories. It's the crazy explosion of media that happened. It's the rise of the right wing. And when I say rise of the right wing, I don't mean just Republicans. The right wing hit the Democrats as well. And then this sleepy league that was like the sixth most popular. I mean, it was behind like boxing and college basketball. It was behind golf in some ways in the 70s. And all of a sudden, it just becomes the coolest sport in this culture, in this explosion of stars. So all three of those stories sort of, we had to put them next to each other in that episode. A couple of key players were Jerry West and uh, Jane Mayer and Todd Boyd. I mean, the fact that we had those three voices allowed us to kind of link these stories in a way that I don't think we would have been able to. Todd Boyd, especially, is a guy who really gets that interaction between politics and culture and media probably as much as is anyone in our country. So he he was really kind of a skeleton key to that first episode. You know, I think you're the perfect person to tell this story because you are so tapped into how the sort of class question is constantly clashing with the political one, right? Even when we call the NBA the Black League, we're saying something without saying it, right? Like, we're talking about a class issue. We're talking about the people who comprise this league. They come from 
the group of citizens in this country that have traditionally been put upon, right? So I love that you explicitly in the doc, I guess, or podcast, I guess it's both, tackle that question. How central was that for you to talk about the sort of class dynamics at play in basketball culture, period? I mean, that very quickly became the answer to the question was that you were really looking at this hinge moment where it's very funny because there's a happy ending to it for the NBA, which is they tag the NBA, they ding the NBA with these kind of dog whistle racist kind of things. It's a black league, you know, oh, they don't play team basketball. There's all this coded racist language. And then lo and behold, what happens? Black culture becomes American culture. It becomes the dominant culture in America. And I really think a lot of people back in the 70s, especially white you know, authority figures in basketball did not see this coming. And so they were trying to cover it up. They were trying to act, no, no, we can be white too. Look, look. And then <laughs> it didn't matter. It was just African-American cultures like, well, we are American culture. And, you know, there's still holdouts nowadays. You'll still see certain people, you know, dis, you know, say shit about the NBA, but it doesn't matter. It's just now so big. And not only is African-American culture, American culture, it's kind of world culture in a way too. So you really see like, I don't get into it in the podcast, but my friends and I, when we were watching the NBA, you could probably guess, guess what we were listening to? You know, this new weird type of music called rap. And there was like Run DMC and Heard his blow, and we didn't care. For us, it wasn't about skin color. It was about, like you said, it was about class. It was about expressing a deeper truth that we weren't hearing from any other cultural outlets. You weren't hearing that kind of deeper truth from, you know, the band Foreigner or Bob Denver or, you know, whatever. So we were just thrilled. I mean, this was the hottest thing we'd ever heard. Immediately, we started driving into Philly and buying records, all the new rap records that were coming out. We started emulating the moves of the player. And little did we know this was happening all around the country. People in our community thought we were weird for doing this, but it was happening everywhere. So it's nice, even though it's a tragic story about what happened in the 80s to these specific players, the outcome is really remarkable in that you have this global league where the players are as empowered to speak out about political issues as any, you're not going to find any other sports league that does this. And the players are better at being famous than just about any. I mean, LeBron is incredible <laughs> at being famous. I mean, let's call it like it is. doesn't mean he hasn't made mistakes, but he's incredible at it. And then meanwhile, America with the opposite direction. <laughs> America's just kept following that right-wing revolution and is just falling apart. So it's it's really two trajectories that you see with this story that's just fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, I do want to ask you about this, like the pod sitting within, right in the middle of this intersection within sports and politics, because frankly, that's my bread and butter. It's what I've covered most of my career. But putting that aside for one second, just going off of what you just said, what do you make of the fact that despite that intersection, we have had these two completely dissonant trajectories of our politics versus our culture. In a way, if you think about it, the split is kind of what enabled the NBA and African-American culture to take off because the second the NBA stopped playing this game where they're going to lure, you know, white fans, they got to cater like that. Really, to me, I look at the moment, you could really look at like 
Iverson, that period is was really the last vestige of the NBA is going to have a dress code. We're going to have these rules and we'll have to get into it. We're not done with the podcast yet, but I really want to ask the question, when did the NBA finally give up on this? When did the NBA finally just say, we are an African-American league, we are a world league, and we're not going to shy away from it because that's when it just shot to the moon. That's when everything took off. And really that division is when you really see America start to kind of really tank tangibly fall apart. I mean, when you really see that dog whistle politics of the early 2000s and W. Bush and Cheney, I mean, that's when I started thinking, oh, this country isn't really working anymore. It's functionally falling apart. It doesn't matter what your politics are, you have to acknowledge. So I think that division in a strange way is also what allowed the NBA to take off the way it did. Well, so with your show, like sitting squarely in the middle of this intersection within sports and politics, I mean, it wasn't very long ago, it was in the last presidency, that major sports media companies were making the bet that Americans were tired of hearing about sports and politics or politics in their sports and were very much shifting their strategies away from content like this. Why are you betting that that has changed, that there is an appetite for that now? And does that even matter to you when it comes to considering doing a project like this? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't too concerned, obviously, with, you know, any kind of traditional commercial success with this. This is just something I just found interesting. And our company, HyperObject Industries, now has a podcast division. So the opportunity was there and I was excited and we had great people. I mean, this to me is one of the most fascinating things that's been going on in the last four or five years is this idea that you can insulate any aspect of life from the larger events that are going on around it. And to watch some of these companies really make a bet and say, no, no, we're never going to talk about class inequality. We're never going to talk about race. We're not going to talk about global warming. We're not going to like, we're only going to talk about sports. And it's just, it's almost funny to me because you can't do that. There's no such thing. I mean, you look at the history of play and games for all of mankind, it always intersects with that stuff. So, I mean, the most ridiculous moment, and she's doing so well now that I can speak about it and maybe even laugh a little bit was when Jamel Hill sort of innocently observed that Donald Trump's a racist <laughs> and everyone went like, oh it my God. It seems like such a benign thing to say now, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just a fact. It's just like, it's like saying, you know, Adam McKay wears glasses, like, and me going, how dare you impugn my eyesight? Like, no, like the people that vote for Trump like that he's a racist. The people that don't like him know that he's a racist. Like what she said wasn't anything. And then like two years after she left or whatever the term would be for how she left ESPN. Now you can say that and no one even blinks, but like Dan Levitard too had similar situations. And so I'm endlessly fascinated by this idea of creating a perfect vacuum with which you can live inside of that's only sports because I've just, you know, I'm 52. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough now that I've never seen that exist. I mean, never. So it's funny to watch them try. You know, it's so crazy, Adam, just talking to you. I can tell your enthusiasm for the game, for the culture. It's one of these. I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about this. I was like, if somebody only tells me all I know about them is that they're very into the NBA, I feel like I know a lot about them. <laughs> it's one of those weird things. Like, th that's just how basketball culture is. It's, I don't know, it's just one of those things. So and true. when it comes to the 
80s Showtime Lakers. There's so many things to tackle with that whole story. What specifically drew you to it? Like, yo, we want to tell this, this part of the story needs to be told. That was, you know, that was Perlman's book. I, I just, you know, I really thought, what can he tell me about the Lakers? I've been hooped to hoop <laughs> my whole life. And I picked it up and I was like, oh, he can tell me a lot. And there was just so much stuff in it that I didn't know. And like, you know how it is when you find that documentary, that show, that book where you're like, you know, you've just found a trap door or a hidden door in your cellar. You're like, oh my God. So immediately, I mean, it was one of those books I read in like, you know, two nights three nights I couldn't put it down and so that one just that's just Perlman doing some great writing and then our showrunners and producers Max Borenstein Rodney Barnes Jim Hecht really cracked it in an interesting way where I was like oh this is a dream project and it touches a lot upon what we're talking about which is that giant shift in American culture that the Showtime Lakers really symbolized I mean back then you were either down with like the Bobby Knight set a pick team game (laughs) or you saw the beauty and artistry of the fast break the way Magic was running it and there really was a dividing line between those two things. And that's when I stopped watching college basketball because I felt like, oh, these college basketball coaches are just handcuffing the players. There's a higher level of play here. I mean, I still watch college basketball sometimes, but that's when I really became an NBA guy first and foremost. So it's just such an elaborate story. And the characters are amazing, like Dr. Buss, Young Magic, Kareem is just one of the most complicated, interesting guys. And Norm Nixon, who was already the point guard when Magic came in, how they invented the offense and then the rivalry with the Celtics. I just couldn't get enough of it. And every now and then a project like that comes your way. Like Succession was like that for me too, where I'm just like, I have to do this no matter what. Oh my God, I love this. And that's the way Showtime Lakers was for me. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, so we have to talk about the casting of this show, right? Because it's just, it's phenomenal. It's making headlines. I think the latest one was Adrian Brody as Pat Riley, which as a long-suffering Knicks fan, don't you dare make Pat Riley likable to me. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, John C. Riley as Dr. Buss. I think also, I mean, we can go down the line, but Norm Nixon, I think his son is playing him. Yeah. And you know what? He can really act. It's not like we just cast his son. It's sort of like, and, and pardon me, I'm forgetting his name. The gentleman who played Ice Cube, who's Ice Cube's son in uh, Straight Out of Compton. Uh, wait, I'm spacing on now. I'm spacing on the name. Like a, O'Shea, O'Shea yeah. Jackson. Uh, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, he legitimately could act. I was like, who would have known it? Ice Cube's son's a good actor, and that's Devon. Devon Nixon can really act. He's done stuff. He's fantastic. So, yeah, that was a, a stroke of luck and genius from Francine Maisler, our casting director, that we got him in there. Well, what are some of the surprises of this casting? Like, who are, who are some of the breakout stars? Obviously, these are, you know, they're playing some 
iconic, right? Like larger than life, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Who should we be looking out for in this show? I got to say, I talked with it with Max Bornstein and Rodney Barnes. Like it was like this guy fell to us from heaven because we had a moment where we were like, we can't cast Magic Johnson. Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> the reason Magic Johnson's a superstar is there's not a lot of people like him like that are that charismatic, yet at the same time have athleticism. And then we need a guy who could really act. And Quincy Isaiah, he was like, he fell from heaven. It was like, where did this guy come from? He was living in the Valley. He had a little agent. I think he had, I don't think he'd ever done anything. I think we might've been the first booking he ever got. Maybe he did a commercial. And this guy, you cannot take your eyes off him. He is so charismatic. He's a skilled actor. He's a thoughtful, complex guy. And every scene I did with him, I'm like, how did this happen? It's one of those crazy stories you hear about movies like, you know, when they're casting Michael Corleone back on The Godfather and they want to go with this unknown actor who'd only done one other movie, Dog Day Afternoon. And, you know, like you hear these stories. And for me, you know, Quincy, unbelievable. So he's the one that's just like, you're right. John C. Riley as Dr. Buss is a miracle to behold. I mean, he's so freaking good. <laughs> but the Quincy story is just like, to this day, I still can't believe we, we were lucky enough to bump into that guy. Adam, because you're a hoops head, I'm counting on you to have credible basketball playing scenes in the show. Please <laughs> don't let it be. And I'm not going to name these other cultural properties where I watch it and I'm just like, this man has never picked up a basketball in his life. I'm counting on you to portray some competent basketball in this show. Please, Adam. Our guys can play. <laughs> Solomon Hughes, who plays Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's also an amazing, fine, brilliant guy, PhD, who played professional basketball, can legitimately ball. Nice. Quincy could play already. He was a football player in college, so he had athletic skills. He has been doing nothing but training since the pandemic hit. He can seriously ball. Devon is like a legit basketball player. Here's what I promise you. will never do the lame shot of the hoop with just the ball coming going. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, or if we're doing it, it's only to jump, time jump. We'll never do it because we have to do that. Where someone is throwing the ball up and then you cut to the backboard where it miraculously comes down. Exactly. (laughs) All our actors are making their own shots. They all can play. We've got incredible basketball people around this. So yeah, no, no, we believe me. And our our incredible DP, Todd Van Hazel, who uh, also shot Hustlers. He's an incredible uh, photographer. He and I have really been working hard on how to get the basketball to look crisp and we're shooting it on film so it looks gorgeous it's uh, we're mixing mediums there's some super eight in there some video it looks really cool well yeah my question was going to be before before waz's was basically like who is the choreographer or the consultant who needs to teach the proper form of a baby skyhook <laughs> i mean we've had a couple different people come in and work with our players we had um steph curry's shooting coach who's incredible mm-hmm. uh oh god once again i can't remember names anymore adan uh now i'm spacing on his last name but he's come in and he's really worked with our guys and really transformed them and then like i said some of these guys are actual you know professional players so solomon knows how to do a sky hook like i mean he's played big time basketball and then rick fox is a consultant on the show as well so he's like chiming in and helping out so there's a whole basketball infrastructure around this i mean you never know until stuff's edited and finished but i can tell you i will bleed and die to make sure the basketball does not suck in this show <laughs> (laughs) Adam, while I have you here, because I am 
cultishly, fiendishly devoted to the show Succession. Are you in tune with how completely obsessed people who watch this show are with the show? Yeah, I definitely hear about it. And, you know, I got the lucky seat of I got to see that first season when the episode started rolling in and I got to feel that click, you know, because <laughs> I directed the pilot. First couple of episodes are always tough when you're establishing a show. So I, I was really happy with them. But you're waiting for that click. And it was, I think, the third or fourth episode where the click went hard. And then suddenly it was like I wasn't even a producer. I was just a fan watching it, waiting for the episodes to come out. And then on the second season, when they jumped up their game, even another notch, I was just, I kept telling Jesse Armstrong, I'm like, I'm now useless to you because I'm just a fan. So now I just, as a producer, I just tell him like, can you please do something with this? Just because as a fan, I want to see it. So I get some ideas in through that door, but I loved it. And then the coolest thing was hearing Nick Bertel's original scratch track of that theme song, which he just messed around with on an acoustic piano in front of Jesse. And I couldn't get it out of my my head. And I was just telling Nick, Nick, I think you've written one of the great theme songs of all time. So <laughs> it's been really fun. It's fun to like see the show come together and be loving it as much as I was. And then to see people have that same reaction. I always love when that happens. When you're seeing something in the edit room, you're feeling it and you're like, am I crazy? Or like, are people going to feel? And then they do. It's like the coolest thing. But yeah, they're finishing the third season right now. And I'm just, I'm more in the seats with you. I'm just like a fan. Like, I can't wait to see it. Were you surprised? Like, there are some shows that have been massive critical successes. Mad Men come to mind. And then when we look back on who actually watched them, it was just all of us in the media. We're a very insular <laughs> people, right? Like, that's just a thing. And a show like Succession, that is not only so insular media, it's very specific to New York media, right? Like, like the East ethos of this corp of this company and of this show is very New York media, which can be an extremely insular place. Are you surprised that it's not just, you know, us watching this show that this does seem to have much more mainstream appeal? You know, once again, it's one of those things you hope, because when I was watching it, you know, when we did the first cut, when we shot the pilot, did the first cut, we're getting the cuts in. What I always loved about it was it's not wealth porn. It, it actually shows how horrible and disgusting this kind of healed wealth is. And that was my one thing where I was like, our audience is going to go for that because we know you can always put out wealth porn and people are going to watch that to some degree. And it's like, this isn't, this is like watching. It's like to keep, I don't know why I'm going to keep the porn metaphor going. <laughs> like, no, really, we like it. Keep going. It's fine. It's yeah. Like watching really uncomfortable sex. It's like, <laughs> is there any audience for that? And it turns out, yes, there is like people wanted to see these kind of damaged, traumatized people with this like abusive father. And uh, it was very heartening. And, and I think it's also a testament to just really good storytelling and acting. I mean, that writing staff on that show, it's a murderer's row. It really is like the, the Brooklyn Nets where there's just, you know, with the exception of what? Claxton, pretty much. Every, no, actually, Claxton's been playing well lately for the Nets. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. I've liked Claxton lately and his defense is good. But every writer on Succession is just a killer. Jesse Armstrong's a killer. They're some of the best writers on the planet. So ultimately, I think it's just an affirmation of that. Get great actors, shoot it with great DPs and do good storytelling. And it's been really nice to see how it's just snowballed and keeps growing. Also, I don't think it hurts that America is in the middle of, <laughs> you know, giant class collapse 
collapse, <laughs> catastrophic unwinding that we're all feeling in our bones. And that show, it's playing some of those notes. I'm not sure that show would have been as successful 15 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's definitely not directly about these times, but it's of these times. So I'm so happy you just said that, Adam, because I am feeling a vibe with you right now. I do want to share something personal with you in the sense that I'm somebody who used to self-identify as a liberal, right? And more recently, I've become a little bit disenchanted with liberalism, and I've become more of a critic of liberalism from the vantage point of the left. And it feels like, through your work, something similar is happening with you. Is that true or am I just reading into things? No, it's been happening for a while. And I would just, I would maybe use personally, I would use slightly different terms. I would say, you know, it's disenchantment with the American, you know, version of liberalism. Right. Yes. Yeah, of course. The DNC with the corporatized. Yes. I'd say the neoliberal agenda. Hmm. I definitely am not a fan of. And it's funny today, I just, a bunch of people were giving me crap because I said in some interview, they said, there's no right-wing equivalent of you. And I was like, yeah, there is Aaron Sorkin. And, uh, <laughs> and like immediately, like, you know, the typical sites you could think of would jump on that and were pounding me on it. And then of course, I get an email from Aaron Sorkin who's like, I kind of agree with you. Like, I mean, not a hundred percent, but he said, my point was, when the right wing is so extreme and so crazy, it kind of makes, you know, what would have been a healthy conservative party, which is really, let's call it what it is, the DNC or the corporate Dems, yep. really what the Republicans used to be. Yep. And suddenly we're calling them liberal. Well, they're not liberal. If you're against universal health care, you're an extreme right winger because every other industrialized country has it. So don't come at me saying you're a liberal if you're against single payer, if you're against a living wage. That's like basic left-wing stuff. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're going to see this kind of awakening and we're going to start to realize like, oh yeah, like Bill Clinton, Biden, like I'm not saying they're evil, but like they're conservatives. They're, they're yep. you know, moderate conservatives, right-leaning moderates, whatever you want to call them. And the right-wingers in our country are just batshit crazy. <laughs> I don't know what you want to call that. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if we're doing this tug of war between right and left, and obviously the center has been moving to the right for 20 years now, right? Like, that's just where we've been. Then, obviously, what used to be considered the left is just center-right. Like, that's just where we are right now. So do we blow up the whole system? Like, I think a lot of us, especially on the more progressive side, wish that there were a functional way to get to more than a two-party system. But how do we actually get to where I think all three of us kind of want this country to be going? I work with a group called Represent Us. That's a nonpartisan group, and there's sole mission is get dirty money out of our democracy. Mm -hmm. Shut off the filthy money faucet. And they've actually done in, like polling and that polls at 90% for right and left wing. Like there actually is a point of agreement we all have, which is our representatives should not be openly taking bribes in the form of campaign contributions or in the form of future jobs or contracts on the side for their other business interests. Like that should be a zero tolerance thing. And I really do think if you just did that for starters, if you got rid of these like 
people that are basically bought and paid for by big corps and billionaires, that would immediately start a momentum shift because you would no longer have that dirty incentive going on. So that that's a big one for me that I just, we need to make that the single voter issue for everyone. And then we can have those other arguments down the road. But the fact that anyone tolerates just naked above board corruption. I mean, that's what's ruined this country. I always say there was like 6,000 lobbyists, registered lobbyists in DC in 1970. And then the number by the Reagan years goes into the hundreds of thousands. And, And once again, registered lobbyists is a tough term because it doesn't really cover all lobbyists. Now the number is almost impossible to calculate. It's hundreds of thousands of influence peddlers in DC. And that's really what took us down. Well, Adam, thank you for the time. This was incredible. Uh, I think you're one of the most important voices in pop culture right now. And I don't just say that because you're a comrade. (laughs) I say that because your work is incredible. So thank you for coming on today. I know Kavita feels the same way. Yeah. Thank you so much. And just how how good does it feel to get back to making films and making TV again, right? Oh, it's heavenly, man. It's like a warm (laughs) bath. And thank you guys. And I really love The Athletic. I mean, I grew up reading all the old school great sports writers. And it's just been a joy to see that kind of stuff being put out, thoughtful work like you guys are doing, the great pieces I read on the site. So uh, I'm definitely a big supporter. Thank you so much, Adam. We appreciate it. Be well, guys. Well, that was a great conversation with Adam McKay. And now we're going to air an interview that I did with Jesus Nice and the Kid Marrow more than a year ago in February of 2020 before the world kind of changed. And first up, I asked them, you know, myself as a kid from New York and them, two kids from New York, what it was like growing up in New York City in the Bronx in the 1980s and 90s. It was wild. It was 80s and 90s Bronx was was Well, not how wild it was. At one point, someone stole the car battery from my parents' car. Mm -hmm. And five minutes later, some guy came up to us. He was like, yo, y'all trying to buy a car battery? I was like, where'd you get the (laughs) car? Fam, I'm five. I understand this is like you're scamming right now. This is a scam. So my parents had to put a chain with a combination lock on the hood. So you had to open a combination lock in order to open the hood of the car. Right. And they were the only people on the block that did that because people would steal your car battery. And that was just a normal Wednesday in the Bronx. Sure. The 90s in the Bronx were ill because it was just like, yo, just keep your head on a swivel and everything is a fucking adventure. Mm -hmm. And it was wild because it's like... I feel like parents are more kind of like helicoptery than they were back in the day. So I was just like roaming around the Bronx at like eight, nine years old <laughs> on the bus. Like, I remember that they would give you like the paper school bus pass. Mm-hmm. So no limit. So you could just take the bus all over the goddamn right. city all day. Like I would go to homeroom, be like, yo, I'm here. And then be like, pew, and then like, get out of there, just <laughs> jump on the bus and go to Queens, Brooklyn, everywhere. Just like, explore New York City. Right. New York was so wild back then. People forget, at one point, they said something like almost half the population, almost half the apartments in the Bronx burned down because of arson mm-hmm. and insurance fraud. And the city, instead of rebuilding them, was like, no, we're just going to put plywood boards with flower pots in front of it. So basically, we're like living in a ghost town, right. like living in a war zone part of the country. And everyone was like, eh, yeah, just don't go above 96th Street on trade. You'll be fine. Be right. Like a total forgotten borough right but people still had to go up there for Yankee games so you had those iconic Yankee games and like Reggie Jackson's at the plate and you look in the background there's just all these fires in the background it would be like the Bronx is burning that's where you get ladies and gentlemen the Bronx is burning yeah 
have a friend who he lives in Bedstuy, and he always tells people when they ask him about what that's like. He's like, I'll put it this way: my landlord has a chain on the trash can outside. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. no joke. Everything's chained down. Yeah, like everything's behind the gate. I was like, why is the garbage locked up? Right. <laughs> like, why do you have to lock the door that where I go to dump my garbage? Right. Like, funny really? enough, I still live in the Bronx, and it hasn't changed that much because there's a new building on my block, and uh-huh. they stole the compost heap from in front of the building. That's and I'm like, I'm like, damn, you gotta chain the top. <laughs> like, it was full of mulch. Right. right now, there's some criminal in the Bronx. So let me tell you, he's got the best fertilizer. No, but let me tell you, you know. That's gentrification because it's a compost. It's a, I was about to say, you know, <laughs> something in '97, you might get shot. Here's the thing: there's always been compost heaps in the Bronx. We just didn't call them that. That's right. We just called them the house we dumped garbage at. <laughs> we just called that Miss Mary's house. Right. Just throw your chicken wings over the gate. I hope her pit bull doesn't bite you. Well, and tell people what it's like being a New York sports fan, especially at that time. Being a New York sports fan is oh, different man. because New York doesn't it doesn't afford you the chance to relax. Like New York is win or die. Yeah. Like New Yorkers are like, oh, it wasn't you didn't win the World Series. You're trash. Like there's no in between. You never hear a New Yorker like, yeah, we made it to the playoffs. I'm cr- I'm proud of them. <laughs> like no, yeah. like if you don't win the World Series, you might as well die. We'll curse at you, we'll spit at you, but we're still gonna ride for you. Right. It's even if there's no, even if it's like a team that you know has no shot. If you look at like Vegas odds and mm-hmm. shit, and the odds are like a million to one. It's still like, yo, you gotta win a championship, or we're not satisfied. You know what I'm saying? But like, you're yeah, certain franchises that I've been like you know what good job good effort you know what I'm saying like shout out to you listen we're all Knicks fans all Knicks fans. Fans. Know look, look like I'm a Knicks it. fan and I gamble exactly. my mantra is if the Knicks covered they won exactly you know what I'm saying Knicks fan is so it's great because Everyone like everyone who's like, you're a Nick fan, you're stupid. In your head, you're like, yeah, I am. But guess what? I'm still going to lie to myself. The first game of every season, you're like, yo, we have a chance. Right. Don't let the don't let the win Knicks win three games in a row. I'm like, woo, baby. <laughs> I'm going to, straight to HR, like I have to take off for the parade. What were your first memories as a sports fan? Mine, like, mine is super, like, I, I could smell it. Mm. And it was 96 to 96 World Series because it was like, I, like, watching it was just like, okay, the, 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 the Yankees were not, they were not favored going in. Like, the Braves had Smoltz, Glavin, you know what I mean, Maddox. It was just like, yo. Andrew God. Jones. And mm-hmm. Andrew Jones, Chipper, you know what I mean? It's like, how are we, we going to beat these guys? Mm-hmm. They're so talented. They're so deep. Da, 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 da. Yankees lose at home the first two games. I'm like, ah, oh, we're fucked. If we lose in Atlanta, like, we're going to get swept. It's a wrap. They don't. They turn it around. Yo, all this stuff happens. I'm just like, yo. And I remember Charlie Hayes catching that last pop up mm-hmm. and the, the Yankees were the champions of baseball. I was like, oh, shit. And I remember me and my dad were watching it and he went to bed early because he had to go to work. Oh, no. And I was just like, it was just me in the living room by myself with like a bag of like bootleg Doritos and like a tropical fantasy Coke. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wise potato whatever. chips. You, yeah. know, you know the vibes. <laughs> and like, I was just like, like, I literally closed my eyes and I'm there again. Mm-hmm. And I was just like I was like 12, 13 at the time and it was just like the windows were open as soon as he caught that pop-up it was just like you could hear the entire block right like ah yeah horns honking gunshots all that right and it was just like super super vivid right Uh, mine has to be 04 the Mm -hmm. Yankees Red Sox that's vivid to me because I was able to drink for that and I was, so, to. <laughs> I was so superstitious. I was like, okay, whatever bar I was at with a last one, mm-hmm. I have to return to that. Mm-hmm. And the bar doesn't even exist anymore. And I would what go bar there. Was it? it was Yankee Tavern. Oh, it was on, Yankee Tavern. Yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, but no, the, it was on 8th Street mm-hmm. in, the, in the village. Right. It's, like, it's like a condo now. Right. You know, of death, of, death of the village. Mm-hmm. But 
I just remember it. I just remembered like trying different things. Like maybe if I stand in this inning, you know what? I'm gonna go outside for this inning. You know, maybe they'll get lucky. Okay, I'll drink a glass of water after this beer. Just wearing the same shirt, totally wearing the same jeans, ordering the same meal. Game four, I was, and you normally know, you know the Yankees spanked them. I was like, yeah, we got mm-hmm. this. And then not so much game five. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. so much game six. <laughs> well, not so much game four. Yeah. And, you know, like, oh. Yeah. And nope. then game seven, I remember just this ominous feeling yeah. all day. Just you just knew. Dread. You just knew. I just knew. Yeah, and then I, knew I remember, like, the, the New York Post or the Daily News had a picture of, like, Babe Ruth or something like, we need you tonight. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, all the Yankee fans, there's a whole city. We just, you just kind of felt it. It was just like, yo, let's get it over with. Red Sox fans were super amped like I remember sitting at the bar and they were coming over and touching me on both shoulders and I was like ah don't touch me <laughs> and it, you know it just I had to watch I had to watch the last inning because yeah. I, I I was raised to never leave a baseball game before the last Absolutely inning Absolutely not you did not pay $30 or however much you paid for that ticket to exactly. leave in the seventh inning Nothing's was, worse than leaving a baseball game and you're like oh, I'm gonna beat traffic and then you watch sports and you're like one of the greatest comebacks ever how did they come back they were down they were two outs two strikes and they made an <laughs> eight run comeback in the end you're like ha ha Right. My father, I invited him to a Yankee game once, and he like we get up in the morning. He's like, ah, "It rained yesterday, and the seats are gonna be wet." And I was like, "What? It's an outdoor stadium. What's your problem?" That was a game. The Yankees hit three grand slams. Oh, the the most oh. they've ever hit right. in the history of the franchise. And my father's watching it, and he's like, "Man, we should have went." Like, it, it was your fault. Right. right. Yo, I want I want to actually give a shout out to my wife because she got me a Father's Day present, mm-hmm. which was. Yankee tickets and she is not like super into sports so she was just like asking her friends like like, what's a good matchup and she bought this was around the time that uh, Jeter was hovering around 3,000 hits Okay, and it's like yo it's gonna happen any any moment she had bought the tickets way in advance because somebody told her it's like yo Tampa Bay is a divisional rival Mm -hmm. and it might matter late in the season so we go and like I think the game where it was like yo he's gonna get his 3,000 hit on this day got rained out Right. And so then I got it was like stroke of luck that, you know, the game got rained out. We go back the next uh, to the makeup or whatever. And or not or uh, my my he would have hit his 3000th hit on that game that got rained out. And I would have got like the the 3000 second hit, hit or right. whatever the fuck. <laughs> and my first child was like five months old or some shit like uh-huh. that. And it was just like a magical moment. It was just like the stars aligned, and like we were in the stadium, and it was like, yo, this is gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. And when he got to the plate, I was like, I told her, I turned to her, and I was like, he's gonna hit home run. Mm-hmm. He's gonna hit home run. And he fucking hit home run. And yo, that place, like, I, I, I think I have tinnitus from that because mm-hmm. it was so loud. It was so intense, and it was like. Yo, it was just like a magical moment right. in sports. You know what I mean? It's like one of those when people talk about like moments in sports are like you know that were so great, and it, that was one for real. I wasn't there, but I think every Yankee fan remembers watching that on TV and remembers the Michael K. Call history with an exclamation Listen, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every Yankee fan remembers uh, you know that. Pitch get and groove to Derek Jeter. Okay, yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's discuss that. Let's discuss that. I mean, Yankee fans in the in the last game of the regular season, mm-hmm, in his last game mm-hmm. ever, in Adam Wainwright in the All Star game. Listen, mm-hmm. groove some pitches to Derek groove Jeter. I don't care. But you know what? I, as a Yankee fan, I, I earned that because one of the worst days of my life, I was dating this girl. She uh, worked for the Obama campaign, so I had to go to Philadelphia. You know, our rivals. Sure. And uh, you know, after '09, we kind of earned it. And I'm at a bar, and it was the game where Derek Jeter like broke his ankle or something like God. that. And they did a standing ovation in the bar 
I was like, you people are literally the worst people ever. Stay classy. I was like, stay classy, Philly. Right. Also, why can't I get a buyback? And they were like, no, we don't, we don't do that in the state. Also, I was what like, the wow. hell is a hoagie? Yeah, what's a hoagie? Yeah. And what is the bit like? What is um Wawa? What the fuck is with Wawa? Wawa is like, do you want a bodega sandwich without beer? Right. Every time I go to a Wawa, I was like, "Where's the beer?" They're like, "We don't do beer, bro." And I'm like, "Wow, wow." I went to uh, Freestyle Love Supreme, and one of the words that people were yelling was "Wawa," and I realized it was because the Giants and the Eagles had just played. So there was a whole like bus full of people from Philly who went to Freestyle Love Supreme, and I had to sit through like three very talented people freestyle about Wawa. Wawa. No, it, I can, <laughs> shout to Lin Manuel because it gets, I, it gets I even worse. I couldn't stop through that, brother. My favorite bar, shout to Foley's on Thirty Third Street. Foley's, yeah. All the baseballs that are signed. Game one of the 09 World Series, me and my boy at the time were big time jerk Yankee fans for the Bronx. We come in like matching Sabathia jerseys. Mm-hmm. We walk in there. That place is filled to the max with every transplant Philadelphia person in there rooting. Cliff Lee's putting on us. Like, uh, it, was, it was just a sc- I'm sitting there at the end of the bar like, yeah, this used to be a nice town, bro. <laughs> Fun fact about Foley's, it's the only landmark bathroom in New York. That's right. They have the oldest <laughs> urinals in New York City and they put ice in it. So when you're watching a baseball game, you get wild drunk, you cover, you pee in the ice, and you're like, yo, bro, bro, I'm melting the ice. <laughs> is like, this is some tourists, like, put your dick away. Is, this, is that a thing? Like, yo, we have the oldest urinals. It's a real yeah. thing. It's a real well, thing. How do you prove it? How do you prove that it's not? Like, if someone tells you they have the oldest urinals, tell I was like, me, all right, I'll take you on that. Tell me who's on the New York Historical Society who has to fact check that. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, like uh, <laughs> we have to carbon test this urine. It's also very specific God, to lie this about. Right. This is John Adams' urine. There's someone. They're right. There's someone at Tonic. Like, damn, what right. can we like? Well, we got the oldest uh, ice scoopers. Uh, oldest yeah. ice scoopers yeah. in the East Coast. This was George Washington's ice scooper. That's right. Yes. Thomas Jefferson used his karaoke that's bar. Uh huh. <laughs> that's, that's right. He's saying BTS. You know that shit would have happened in the Heights, though, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, he's definitely. What Thomas Jefferson up there smoking mad hookah and shit. <laughs> Getting lit. Thomas Jefferson used to go to La Marina. A lot of people don't remember that. <laughs> people, people forget. That's when, remember that, that, that painting of George Washington crossing? Mm-hmm. That was in La Marina. Right, going to La Marina. He's, He's like, yo, what's back, over there? If you look at the back, they got a hookah. Like, yo. It's like, yo, the choppies is that way. <laughs> yo, turn up, turn up. Forget about that revolution. How did y'all get together? Jail. Uh, <laughs> grinder. Grinder. <laughs> I mean, listen, man, if that were true, y'all should be the poster boys for that app. Like, no, if, listen, if that was true, that was what we would lead with. Okay? <laughs> We'd be on Drag Race right now. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Dragging somebody. Uh, uh, yeah. like, That's not what Drag Race means. Flop. <laughs> wow, look at that dress. and not have it in your size. Mm-hmm. But um, no, we met in at every New York City love story. New York City High School. Right. You know, like, but it was one of those weird things where I saw him across the cafeteria and I was like, hey, yo, do you want to have a highly successful podcast, a late night show in 20 years? <laughs> yo, word. All right, I'll see you. All right, holla. holla. Yo, just, yo when, when they invent Twitter, just holla at me on that and yo, we'll, we'll, we'll connect. I don't know what ICM is, but they're going to represent us, so we'll contact them. Yeah. Later. Yo, right, I'm going to hit you me. on Twitter when it's invented. Bet. But nah, it was like he had his people, I had my people, mm-hmm. and they kind of hung out with each other. We never really interacted like that. It was just like, oh, I know that guy over there. Right. Like, yeah. And then just fast forward, we're on Twitter. It's tweeting about, uh, you know, shout out to Bronx Twitter, which is highly, highly specific Twitter. Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone else is like, you know, like regular Twitter is like, I had a bad day today. Da, da. People was like, yo, I'm going to punch that bitch in 4F, so turn the radio down. You're like, okay. okay. And then you're like, and this is like early Twitter. Right, so it's right. just like GPS Twitter. At the right. location, basically. Yeah. The third, if you swipe three times, it would be people around you. Right. Yeah. And so, so then it's just like, oh, shit, okay. Are you going to duffer in 4B? I might pull up. I'm coming up. <laughs> like, I'm two blocks away. Twitter was, so, Twitter was so early back then. There was a girl on my block that we called 
uh, superstar because uh-huh. she had 200 followers. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I, was, I was like, hey, Tatiana. But, um, <laughs> and y'all went to Lehman, yeah? We went to Le- uh, Lehman for uh, summer school. Oh, okay. For I summer school. D. McClain. Oh, D. Remember, remember they did like magnet schools in the summer. Right, so, like, if, right. Yeah. And that's where AC, that's where air conditioning was at most people. Totally. And yeah. free lunch. Yeah. So uh, say less. Even though now they're like, hey, you guys like, oh, you like air conditioning and free food? Well, uh-huh. if you like school, why don't you try it out? Rikers. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, I'll take a break from that. Fish sticks aren't as good. It's not. Yeah, not. Right. It's, not. It's, a, it's a big difference if you're eating fish sticks with a program card versus <laughs> wearing it in a green jumpsuit. Yeah. Right. You know? Right. I went to Stye. Hey, shop to Stye. 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 At least you didn't go to... Not took the A. Took the A. Oh, wow. Took the A all the way from 168. Shout out to you for getting a Stuyvesant because Bronx Science, I might have robbed you a finger. Well, yeah. Shout out to me to getting into Stuyvesant. I think I'm one of the 70... How stressful Stressful. I think I was one of the 77%, though, right? Mm-hmm. I count as, yeah. yeah. I, I, I missed Bronx Science by two points and oh, I no. made it into Brooklyn Tech. And my mom was like, yo, do you want to go to Brooklyn Tech? I was like, I don't know. I've never <laughs> been to Brooklyn in my entire life. Shout out to Brooklyn I Tech. Another t- I thought it was another country. Right. Shout out to Brooklyn Tech. Everyone thought, everyone treated Brooklyn Tech like it was a participation <laughs> venue. Everyone's like, you got to Brooklyn Tech? Why'd you even waste your time? <laughs> it was either Stuy or Bronx Science. Well, Ugh. you remember back in the day when NYU was a safety school? Uh-huh. People don't remember that. People, I, this, listen, like, <laughs> listen, and now it's like, oh, like people just like now it's not casual. Right. Now, because my sister went to NYU, like right. she leads with that. No, it's like, a, a highly reputable institution. I'm like, yeah. how was your day, sis? She's like, well, you know, as an NYU <laughs> graduate, <laughs> I couldn't find parking. I was like, okay, I have okay. no idea what that first part know. had to do with that, but oh, p- please put your diploma away. Yeah, where, where yeah. Why, is, why, why are you wearing it on your chain? Right. She's like, I, you know, as someone who has two master's degrees, I have a margarita. I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. all right, all right. You got it. <laughs> it's like, um, Andy Bernard from The Office. Uh-huh. I went to Cornell. Ever heard of it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, we have. We have. Yes, we have. So um, yes. Why do you think your guys, like what really strikes me about your show is that it's so fucking New York. It right. is so New York, but obviously not just New Yorkers love it. Mm-hmm. Why do you think your humor and your commentary resonate with the rest of the country? Well, I mean, before we can even answer that, yo, shout out to the network exec that told us we were to New York. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who works for a network that no longer exists, so shout Ooh, out to him. Okay. Bah, bah, well, I, think, I think what people enjoy is our authenticity and the fact that when you when you look at us, we're having fun when we're doing it. Totally. It never, you know, it never looks like we're just being busted in, like, yo, has it been 30 minutes left? Let's get out yo, of here. Okay, all right, go. Say, like, uh, yeah, today we have blah, 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 hey, blah. Hey, hey y'all. Welcome to Monday, y'all. Hey, ha, ha, bye. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> But it's, it's kind of like, I think because we recreate the feeling of hanging out with your friends, mm-hmm. and you know, like, that, that stupidity of, like, your friend sees a meme or a tweet. Like, we're like the living group chat. Right. Like, yeah. say there's, like, a wild video, and you know how, like, you, you get excited to show it to your friends we're literally bringing that video to you in your living room and we're like yo like, but yo, we yo. don't do it like yo look at this and this this is why this is wrong this is why this is problematic we're like yo look at this ha 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 like literally, literally sometimes that's our commentary on stuff we just laugh at stuff and sometimes mm-hmm. that's all it needs sometimes it doesn't need us to break down the intellectual levels of why this is funny or you know the Shakespearean effort of humor in this 15 second vibe right. or something like, like that I want to end on kind of a serious note okay um Y'all did a, a hype video for the Yankees uh, before the postseason, and it meant a lot to me, man, because, like, you guys, you walked around the South Bronx, mm-hmm. and you talked to Yankee fans who looked like you and me. Right. And I feel like people, whenever they talk about Yankee fans, they, they you know, they characterize us as these, like, spoiled, rich, corporate, white dudes, mm-hmm. and that exists right. 100%. Oh, yeah. 
But nobody ever thinks of the kid who literally grew up in the South Bronx next to Yankee Stadium, who has to see the you richest even, team. You can't even see. I'm raising my hand. Yeah. I literally grew up across the street from Yankee Stadium. Me yeah. and my sister used to sit in the window and we'd hear the games. We didn't, we're little kids. We don't know what it was. We thought it was dragons inside <laughs> the stadium fighting until my mother explained what it was because it was the old Yankee Stadium. And you know, shout out to you, appreciating that video. And shout out to uh, the MLB. Yes Network and MLB yeah. for they're, they're embracing brown culture. They're, they were just like, fam. You guys, everywhere you go, you rep the Yankees. It's not just about the hat. Like, you guys love, you guys know Yankees. You guys know about, like, Yankee players. We don't even remember we're on the roster and stuff. Yeah. So for them to give Y'all us- threw in a Mariano Duncan deep exactly. cut. Listen. Exactly. <laughs> we play today, we win today. Okay, that's it. We play, that's it. We play today, we win today, that's it. And on the same way you're talking, when we were walking around interviewing people, you know, usually they walk around and it's like a group of white people. And it's like, hey, do you guys want to talk about the Yankees? It's like, oh, get the fuck out of here. No, okay. We're doing it and like people are like coming from across the street. Mm-hmm. People who work at Yankee Stadium like, oh, I would love to be in this video, but I can't because I work for Yankee Stadium. But like, yo, thank you for what you're doing. And then it's even talking to old, older white Yankee fans who they're just like, yo, the way you guys are excited for Aaron Judge or the way I was excited for Mickey Mantle, mm-hmm. the way I was excited for this. Yeah. And it's just like, you see, it's not about color. It's not about a generation. It's just about a fan base and just yeah. loving. And just a team. Yeah, like, just loving your home team. team. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, when people see us on TV, that, that comes through. Because when you see us, like, that time and for the before the playoffs, we're on the field, but we you can see on our faces we are so excited to be oh, there. Oh, totally. So excited. Like, I was like, Harold Reynolds in real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, we're, we're standing on the field, and Aaron Judge is like, oh, my God. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Judge. <laughs> you mind if I take 50 selfies with you? <laughs> yeah, but, no, 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 it's not striking all. And then, like, we've played in CC Sabathia's charity softball game yeah. two mm-hmm. years in a row. And it never, you, like, we always heard each other, like, yo, fam, we are... We're on, Yankee, we're we're, on the field we're at Yankee Stadium. The same field as Jeter, same field as Mariano, same field as Babe Ruth. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Like, that, like, all the comedy, all the success from, all that stuff is great, but that moment right there, when you're there, like, that one time we were doing the MLB Network, mm-hmm. and we're being interviewed, and, like, they have all the sound off, and the crowd is like, this is Mero, and we go, like, you're, and you just hear a yurp through mm-hmm. all the Yankee Stadium. I was like, fam, it does not get better than this moment yeah, right here. Well. And it's and it's funny because it's like usually when you watch baseball like analysts or whatever and commentators or whatever unless unless it's like you know Poppy and A Rod and whatever and they like messing with each other it's a little dry mm-hmm. you know what I mean but like when we went up there these guys were like it's like they loosened up you know what I mean and like they were cracking up the whole time it, yeah. was, it was it was and it was fun well so how do you think I know I said that was my last question but mm-hmm. this is actually my last question how do you think you know we can get baseball to people of color and how, how we can get people of color to think of baseball as cool again. The problem with baseball, it has too many unwritten rules. Mm. It has too many, it seems like, it's like, don't do this, don't flip the bat, don't do this, don't do that. It's like, yo, fam, all those people that follow those rules are dying. Yeah, they're dying. Like, and it's to, funny now, because like Baseball, the, you, gotta, you gotta change, you gotta get rid of unwritten rules, you gotta make you gotta make it get a more personal it. thing. Make it like, everyone's like, oh, we root for the team on your back. Like, no, I wanna root for Cameron Mabin. I wanna root for these individual players. Allow these people to be individual. Allow people to have facial hair on the Yankees like stop playing with the same rules that we had mm-hmm. in the 50s when we didn't have black people playing at all why do we still have these rules like come on yeah. like fam baseball is if you're asking someone to sit down for two hours and a half every night all through the summer like fam give them a reason to do that give right. them commentators that talk their talk and understand what the players are saying or at least give them the option mm-hmm. like if you want like the old heads to stick around 
cool. But like, you know how they have like, yo, if you want to hear this in Spanish, press your SAP button. Like, yo, if you want to he- hear this in hood, press like the <laughs> Deuce of the Marrow button. Like, you also, know they need like, to make an option where you don't hear any commentators and uh-huh. you just hear the field. You just hear, you, oh, I would 100% watch that, every, man, right? I know every yeah. commentator is like, don't give them an idea, Jesus. But yeah, it, that would be fantastic. Super fun interview with Jesus and Mara. I wish we could have aired the whole thing. Jesus and Mara's show airs Sundays and Thursdays on Showtime, and they are recent WGA Award winners, which is pretty cool. So thank you to Jesus and Mara. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty good first run, don't you think, Kavitha? Adam think McKay, so. Jesus and Mara. I'm, I'm biased. They're New York City guys. I'm a New York City guy, although I am in sunny Los Angeles now. But I feel proud that we had two New Yorkers on our maiden voyage. And of course, Adam McKay's work kind of speaks for itself. The guy is brilliant. A hundred percent. And I promise to all of our West Coast listeners that we will get some West Coast love out here in episode two and beyond. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, give us five stars everywhere that you get your podcast, whether it be Spotify, Apple, we're everywhere. So please subscribe and rate. Thank you for listening. We'll see you guys next time. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.